Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk about a new book on the market called The Strategy Strikes Back, and we're very excited to have one of the editors, um, Major Matt Cavanaugh, on the show, and then Kelsey Atherton, who's been on the show talking about other topics, but we're having him back on the show to talk about this. So first and foremost, thank you both for being on the Loopcast. Excited to be here. So for those that might not know, Major Kavanaugh is an active duty Army strategist and a non-resident fellow of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has many writings that have appeared in numerous publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal to list a few. And as I said, he is a co-editor and he also co-wrote The Strategy Strikes Back. And the full title is How Star Wars Explains Modern Military Conflict. So this is going to be a very fun topic to talk about. And those that might not know Kelsey, Kelsey is a staff writer for C4ISRNet and Fifth Domain. And he's also the co-founder of Grand Blog Tarkin. So thank you for both being on the show. And why don't we start off with just... Coming up with how did this book come about? Because it's very creative, it's very interesting, and it has some fantastic ways of looking at strategy from a not-so-conventional viewpoint. This is Matt. I'll probably go run with that one. Um, you know, for me, in a lot of ways, uh, this book, if the first film title was A New Hope, then this book is a new lens. It's a, it's a new way, a fresh perspective on modern conflict and military strategy. So I, I taught for a few years at West Point, and obviously when I did, I was older than the cadets that were in my classroom. And there's a generational gap there. There are things that I know about modern conflict that they don't, and vice versa. So if, when you're trying to bridge those generational gaps, it really matters to have some sort of common terrain, some place that you can all come together, some place that you all no, and, and I, I felt like I didn't have that. And I left that assignment, and I actually went to an assignment in Korea um, where I served in an in infantry division forward stationed. And the staff that I was on was half Korean Army officers. And those Korean officers know a heck of a lot about the Korean War, but almost nothing about the American Civil War or the Second World War or other conflicts that I'm more familiar with. So there was a cultural gap there as well. And while I was in Korea, you know, it, it, there was this sort of moment, uh, an epiphany almost, and I talk about it um, in the, the uh, prologue, or the, I think it's the introduction to the book, um, where I sort of had this realization that Star Wars is a war. It's the one war we all know something about. You know, whether you're a cadet, a colonel or a Korean, 
Um, it crosses languages, cultures, generations. And it's even bigger than that. Civilians know Star Wars. And I know that there was a lot of talk about um, how the, the most recent, the Han Solo film, didn't hit its box office expectations. But a lot of people still went to see that movie. And so in a lot of ways, Star Wars is a common piece of terrain. Um, it's a place where pretty much anybody uh, that, that knows anything about Star Wars can come together and, and use it as a jumping off point to learn some bigger lessons about war in our modern, modern world. Kelsey, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Sure. So I um, was happy to be invited um, onto the Strategy Strikes Back project back before it was settled on a name or anything, but it reminded me a lot of the same or a similar impulse that went into creating Grand Blog Tarkin, which was a, there were a lot of people that I knew and were just talking in the national security space who had ideas they wanted to explore about wars that didn't fit really in any, there was no place to publish thoughts on them that was like specifically science fiction focused that would get at how conflict works or how we see conflict working outside of like the real wars. There's a lot of like commentary on like wars as they've happened. There are a lot of commentary on um, the wars that are popular in the American imagination, right? Like there's a lot of thought about like we have the revolution, we have the civil war, we have world war two and then like Korea, Vietnam and those anchor sort of our understanding and our metaphors for war but Star Wars is a pretty common text. That's why um, I went with Grand Blog Tarkin for that project. And um, and I think just having a way to, to delve into that space, to look at the strategic complexities where no one is, like, super ideologically aligned personally with, like, the Empire or the Rebellion. Those are fictional entities, and it's fun to see how they play out. Um, and I think it's a lot of freedom to work about that. And I like to... Um, I personally like to think of Strategy Strikes Back as almost a spiritual successor to the work of Grand Block Tarkin. And that's a great point that the universe of Star Wars and the different sides that are battling against each other really do provide a neutral ground to discuss strategies that are pertinent to today's time. I mean, of course, there are going to be some diehard Star Wars fans that do <laughs> associate with one side or another. But why don't we discuss this idea of this neutrality and using art, especially science fiction art, as a way to explain strategy? Yeah, well, this is Matt again. Um, fiction is fun. You know, um, when T Tim O'Brien... Uh, the, the, the author, the writer of The Things They Carried, when, when he was asked why he used fiction to, to help people understand the Vietnam War, he said essentially because fiction can make you feel um, in a way that, that raw data just can't um, make you feel war. You know, it, it, too often when we, we, when we crack open a newspaper, um, war is, is broken down into numbers, places, and dates. Um, Twelve soldiers were killed at location X on date Y. And there's, it's just devoid of all sentiment and feeling. Um, but, but, you know, if, if, if I can tell you a story, uh, if, if I can um, get you to kind of embody what it might have felt like 
to exist in that conflict just for a fraction or a sliver of a moment, then, then in a lot of ways that's much more powerful than, um, than any raw recitation of, of a historical fact or a contemporary news report um, ever could. And, you know, to some extent, uh, those of us in the uniform military, so I'm, like, was previously mentioned, I'm an active duty Army major, so anything I say reflects my own opinions and certainly not the rest of the organization, the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. But I think one thing that, that when we're, we're looking for lessons about modern war, we've often looked to two places, and we've mined those two places to the, the greatest depths that can be imagined. So we look to history. The American Civil War, for example, there have been over 70,000 books written about that conflict, more than one per day since the end of the war. We've mined history for ideas. If you look at theory, Sun Tzu's art of war, during the Song Dynasty alone in China, uh, there were 43 separate thousand-page commentaries written on that, that tiny little book. Um, we've mined the theory for ideas as well. And so, to me, fiction, just like Grand Blog Tarkin uh, in, and, and other venues like this, I mean, the, this, is a, this is what I meant when I said a new lens. This is a, a new way of finding lessons uh, to put to use in modern war and, and even beyond. So what makes the Star Wars universe particularly suited to discuss strategy? I'll, I'll take this one. Um, I think I think what's so good about Star Wars um, for discussing strategy is that there are a lot of individual like set piece battles, and then the arc of the conflict is pretty clear. Um, and you have you have your asymmetric fights, you have your um, your squads and your boarding actions. You have um, Honestly, like surprise insurgency in um, in Return of the Jedi, right, where the, suddenly the occupiers have to deal with a population they didn't realize was hostile and armed enough to matter. Um, and you also get like some just iconic moments, like the Battle of Hoth um, and both battles around the Death Stars, where you have like crucial technologies and then crucial technologies that fail or are inadequate to the tasks to which they've been designed. And so it's a lot of room with a pretty familiar language and pretty accessible. No one, I think, is going to be particularly upset if you misclassify a walker as an infantry fighting vehicle instead of an armored support or something. But you can still get the sense of this is big and carrying people and shooty, and that means something different. Um, and what is the ways to stop that? And major you know, I would, I would, an yeah, sorry, you know, ahead. I would amplify that. Oh yeah. I would just amplify that and say that, um, it's, it's the length in a lot of ways to me. So, um, the, I, I've taken a little bit of flack and I'm fine with it. I think it's appropriate, but I think it's defensible to say that Star Wars is the Peloponnesian war for the modern world. Um, maybe not in every respect, but certainly in terms of its reach, and its um, length, 
and width of such an epic and long conflict spanning generations. Uh, you know, depending on how you count, we're at six decades plus um, in the, the saga films. And, you know, wars are like that. They, they grind on for an awful long time, and they go through ebbs and flows, and they go through um, different iterations and stages. And what happened before influences what's to come. You know, the rock, the rock in the river of war alters the course of the current, but it never stops the current. And so um, I think it's, it's the length. And then the other, the other reason is that I think that it's, it's the, the aspects of the conflict, not the specifics. So um, it, it, Kelsey wrote one of my favorite essays in the book. Um, and whereas you, you, it's not, a, it's not a, a, a specific, you can't find specifics in Grand Moff Tarkin's strategy in the real world. I mean, there's nobody walking around with a, a planet-killing weapon, right? Um, but the idea that you would seek to instill fear in your opponent with your overwhelming superiority and strength is something that is widely applicable in most, if not many, you know, conflicts. Uh, so I, I think it's those two things, the length, and then it's, it's aspects or themes from the, from the Star Wars films as opposed to the specifics. On the flip side, what might be the limits of using Star Wars or any piece of science fiction to describe and analyze strategy? And I think one of the fundamental limits of the just the structure and the narrative arc of the trilogy um, is it's hard to see what the empire's the emperor's personal political play is because the Sith have a really weird and narrow ideology that requires super powerful beings to constantly be scheming against each other and exterminating all others. It's it's narrow. It doesn't quite match up. Um, it's why when I look at Star Wars, I really and most fascinated by, like, um, Mon Mothma or uh, General Organa or um, Moff Tarkin, who are the people actually implementing the moving parts of it. Um, but there's, there's, I mean, there's obviously limits to how far you can go. I think it's an incredible resource for 101 for getting familiar metaphors out there. Um, it's sort of a, like, Darmok at Tanagra um, for strategy language, it's a, it's metaphors that can be expanded and applied, but like no one is going to, we don't have a real world scenario of you have to plan a ground assault while spaceships escape and there's a generator. And also there's a powerful cannon that disables your fleet in orbit. Um, there's just the nature of the universe itself hits hard walls pretty fast. Yeah, and yeah, I'd actually just continue to amplify what I was just saying, that um, you're not going to get a lot out of the Jawas. You know, um, you're not going to get a lot out of the, the specific peculiarities that, that, that pop up in, in the films. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's sort of clear and obvious to anyone that uh, 
magic such as the Jedi possessed is not on offer for us as something that we can use and wield and learn in our own world. But strategy sure is. I mean, it, just the thought that you have this powerful mechanism between your ears that, that you can reason and you can see forward through time and see the consequences of potential actions and avoid the ones with the most downside and lean towards the ones with the greatest upside. I, I, you know, I, I think that the, if, if, you, if you set yourself on the right, um, you, you know, you, 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 you've got a fine-tuned sense of your, your ability to separate the fantastical from the, the real, uh, you know, the, the aspects of the story that can be applied to the real world, um, then I, uh, you know, I think that's where the right barometer is. I also want um, oh, to take a second to build on that, where um, we talk about, like, the, there, there's some obvious limitations to how we talk about Star Wars and apply those lessons to other strategy. But we also, like the other dominant narratives, especially in like American political culture of talking about wars, um, are like parables or examples drawn from Vietnam and from World War II. And the technology there does not match. The tactics only superficially resemble in a lot of ways what we're doing now. So we have the – so we also have our other big set of useful metaphors is I think – Similarly limited, but not treated as such because it's historic. What would you say is the portrayal of strategy and society in Star Wars in the sense of we tend to have this idea that the good guys tend to ultimately win in these movies? How does that apply to strategy in real life or when you're trying to use something like Star Wars to discuss strategy where the good guys don't always win? So it, it, the first part of the question, how is strategy portrayed popularly, sometimes it comes off as sort of scheming and, and evil. You know, um, my own essay in the book was, was evaluating Yoda's performance as a strategist. And our minds have been sort of hijacked by Jar Jar Binks in those first three films when George Lucas went back and did episode one, two, and three. But if, if, you, if you watch those films again, there's, an, there's actually a lot of nuance in those films, and I, I actually think that there's almost more lessons in those first three films than in, than in all the rest of them. And, you know, in, in going back and looking at Yoda's performance across those episodes one, two, and three, you see pretty clearly that he performed pretty poorly. You know, there's this popular myth that Yoda's just amazing because he's so gymnastic and he's flipping and flying and, um, you know, he's, he's so short and he's so deadly with a, with a lightsaber. And, and I'll grant that. I, I love that part of Yoda. But his performance in those first three films is... is very poor, and conversely, his opponents uh, 
do very, very well. And it, I think earlier we were, we've already been talking about sort of that good-evil dichotomy, that split. And I think sometimes uh, effective strategy gets kind of lumped with the bad guys as uh, schemers and plotters and that sort of thing. And the good guys kind of just think in the moment. And I, I'm worried about that a little bit, you know, because um, because I want, you know, I want the good guys to be uh, skilled with strategy. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the themes or the narratives that I think gets uh, covered in the in the in the films, but also that that we pick up on in the in the book. What are your thoughts, Kelsey? Yeah, so I think one of the things, and this is um, actually probably the greatest strength of the prequels, is showing a existing governing order and like security establishment completely unprepared for war. And it's not like we don't there. There's obviously arms and armies and forces in the universe um, prior to when we when everything opens up with the blockade of Naboo. But what we really see is that the Jedi Knight have the Jedi Order had built themselves into a position of um, of being able to negotiate and negotiate with magic because the Force, but basically negotiate and establish peace. And they hadn't really thought about what happens if there's a concerted multi-planetary effort against it. Um, and so that's really, I mean, it's explored um, okay in the prequels, and I think explored really, really well in the Clone Wars show, um, of what happens when they have to adapt to fighting a real war, and what happens when you build the institutions of war. Um, the whole imperial military establishment that goes out of the old republic military establishment, that's where you're building and cultivating strategists and officers and the whole logistics and every apparatus you need to win a war because the Jedi don't, that's not their skill set. They're very good in individual combat or small combat and they're good at the negotiations and the, but they aren't, they don't have that strategic vision. They don't understand what it means to take over and control other, other planets and hold them. Um, And it's something that they learn um, somewhat through the Clone Wars show, and we see it um, somewhat happen in the prequels, and they've gotten sort of good at it by the end, but the one really, like, the one tactical or even strategic genius that the Jedi produce is Anakin, who um, sees the path to power differently, and that's his deep personal conflict and leads him to the Empire, but you have a world that lends itself towards the strategy is only in the side of those consolidating power against those already holding it. Um, and when we move to the newer movies, um, or the I guess the original trilogy and then the newer movies, we see strategic thought in development um, somewhat, right? I think you would put I would put um, Organa, um, General Organa, and uh, Mon Mothma up there as the only other really like relevant strategists um, in there. And it's I mean um, Akbar probably too, but you have. But they, they're late to the game. The Rebellion is late to learning how to counter this thing. Um, but it's all, the whole thing happens within really two or three generations of the strategic context changing and building. Um, and so it's neat to see everyone learning on the fly. And I think um, the films focus, obviously, um, on the, the Rebellion and the triumphs of good over 
evil. I mean, that's cinematic convention as much as anything else. But it's interesting to see what happens when a strategic culture is built and then has blind spots in it. Um, Tarkin never foresaw the the Death Star failing. Um, but we see very clearly in Rogue One that it was built to fail because they never really, the engineers never really had the full interest of the Empire at heart in building it. Um, I think there's a lot more more depth in who thinks strategically and who is learning than just the play-by-play good versus evil that we get. And considering all of that... You know, oh, go ahead. Yeah, it's mad. I'm gonna, uh, you know, one last thought. You know, um, because you asked specifically about how strategy is portrayed in the films, and one of the key elements is um, th- that one of the characteristics of a strategist must always be some anticipation or foresight of of what's to come, and you get Yoda in particular, pushing back against that um, in the way that he teaches and coaches and mentors. And they pay the price for that, for such a small uh, fighting force determined by your blood. Um, and, and I understand that that may have been uh, the Jedi teachings, but at the very least, if, if not allowing marriage, then a second tier of maybe less genetically rare individuals, but still defenders of, uh, of the Republic. Um, and, you know, out of that, I really take that, that a strategist is meant to look to the future, to see over the horizon, recognize the requirements to come, and build resources so that surprise does not turn into regret. So, I, you know, um, that's really what jumps out at me about how they portray strategy over the course of, of the films. Sorry. How would you say that we can incorporate the idea of a dystopia or a dystopian view into analyzing strategy, considering Star Wars, but considering strategy in real life? And I think one um, thing, because we have... It's hard to... um, look at Star Wars as like a society that fell and descended into dystopia. It's had um, dystopic elements from the start. That's how we meet Anakin, right? Is when he's, he's, he is enslaved. um, And then that's to say nothing of how they deal with droids. Um, But I think what's interesting to look at is a societal, like is the societal collapse um, from a rough democratic confederation, the, in the old Republic, to a um, to the the uh, the very uh, the totalitarian fascistic um, empire, the very tightly controlled state, and that can happen within duration, but it doesn't happen uniformly. And the whole the empire's entire strategic model after it wins the the Clone Wars, after it's established a rough monopoly on force, is trying to figure out how to quash rebellion, and it has no good answers. It knows that its policies are repressive. There's nowhere in there where they think, should we give them token democracy and lessen that? Should we get buy-in from the populace? It's how do we crush the people who are fighting against us? Um, and that's where the Tarkin Doctrine comes from. That's where the other later strategies, the whole... Um, the First Order seems to operate entirely on a just roaming, crush-everything-in-its-way strategy. Um, and it misses what 
what states are built on um, and what state, what makes states durable, which is at least some buy-in from the public. And I think one lesson from Star Wars, right, is you cannot do it all from force alone. And we don't really see any attempts by anyone to do it. The rebellion is assumed to have some consent of the government in the sense that they are um, a freer people and trying to establish a totalitarian thing, but it all falls apart by, um, by force awakened. So it's not clear that anyone in the Star Wars universe has any firm grasp on the government side of things other than the fighting side of things. Yeah, and this is Matt again. Uh, you know, at the, at the very beginning of Episode One, the Republic rules the galaxy and the Jedi are policing that rule. That, and by the, by the end of the Episode Three, we're... Uh, the Republic has fallen, essentially, and uh, the Jedi are two heartbeats away from extinction. Uh, there, there are lessons that we can, we, you know, we can observe that trajectory and extract lessons. And fiction does that very well. It, it can show you the road you don't want to travel. Because when we're talking about the future, we're actually talking about many futures, many roads that we could potentially travel on. Um, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 comes to mind, but even more importantly, uh, our co-editor and, and co-writer Max Brooks's book, World War Z. Uh, my next assignment is actually to um, U.S. Northern Command, which is, uh, most folks will, will know it as NORAD, um, re- which is responsible for the protection of the American homeland. And inside of that protection includes against threats from uh, fast-moving pandemic disease, uh, the spread of fast-moving pandemic. Um, World War Z is about zombies, but it's not really about zombies. In a lot of ways, you could read it as uh, what governments and individuals and societies and the public would do in response to such a fast-moving pandemic. And so what fiction can do very well, and dystopian fiction especially, is force you into an environment, force you into the unthinkable really, and get you to confront the consequences of what that might mean. Because the truth is sometimes the, the real world <laughs> is stranger than fiction, and it, and it goes even more sideways than what fiction comes up with. Um, although I'm, I'm, very, I'm still holding out hope that Max's book doesn't come true. Um, but so I, I think that's the value of, of, of dystopian fiction in a lot of ways. Moving on to a more personal level, the two of you had a lot to do with this book and you've both written sections of it. So what was that experience like? And what were your favorite takeaways from this project? Kelsey, do you want to go first? Sure, I can go. Um, so my my involvement in the in the production of the book was um, was significantly less. I was I was no no editor here. I think I maybe suggested a writer, another writer, to include at some point in the process. But um, for my essay itself, it was really. Um, it was a really neat opportunity to um, take the thoughts that had been rattling in my head ever since, really probably ever since like 
maybe not the first time I watched Star Wars, but maybe like the second or third time, and put them um, together in a way that was designed to be a, a, a gestalt whole. Just get the what is it about this character that's interesting, and what is it about their strategy that has um, anything any relevance to a casual observer? What what could I? How could I sell Tarkin as a relevant strategist to talk about to someone in like three sentences or in like thirty seconds, and maybe give it? And I, it's longer than that, obviously. It's a, it's a few pages, but being able to go into that space um, and find that out, and what um, I think was really neat, and the a lot of how Blog Tarkin worked, and we were writing stuff then, was we would write about science fiction, and we would try to draw parallels in there somewhat explicitly sometimes, and. Sometimes just leave it at science fiction, but I think the the tricky the tricky parallel for Tarkin is in is he's a figure entirely built um, entirely built through to deliver peace through order and superior firepower, and so the Death Star, which is like kind of hokey, especially like the second time they tried, like, well, do they have? Any other ideas? What are the ideas here? You can't just like blow up planets and think that's victory. But what does it get? What does it take to get you to the point where that's how you see the world? Where the way you conceive of counterinsurgency is to simply make the cost of insurgency so high that literal millions die in doing it. Right? Like we, the the disturbance in the force is the death of a planet. Um, and it's a, I mean, it's it's a it's a thing that can only really be explored in fiction, and only should be explored in fiction. But to have the well, this is the logical end of this long line of thinking of um, peace through force alone. And maybe after seeing it follow through to that end, it's a really good way to pause and say maybe this is nothing we should be approaching. Uh, maybe this is the kind of thing where we can leave it safely in the realm of movies about spaceships and lasers and force magic. Um, but it was good. I really, I, I thoroughly enjoyed um, writing the piece and working on the book and um, having it out there, having a way, a different way of thinking about war and a different way of thinking about fiction out there. Major Kavanaugh? Yeah, so for me, obviously, I had a different role editing. And one of the things that was just fantastic about doing the book was um, getting to work with so many people with so many different amazing views. I mean, if you add up the number of years of strategic experience that we have in, in the writers in the project, we're getting into the many hundreds. Um, Kelsey's essay was highlighted in one of our strongest reviews as the best essay in the book. I, you know, I had no other cause or call to work with his, you know, work with him before this. So that was fantastic. Um, General Stan McChrystal, commander of all forces in Afghanistan, uh, remembers finishing Ranger School as a lieutenant, and then the first movie he went and saw in theaters was A New Hope, was episode four, 1977. Um, you know, that that's a, a, a piece of common ground that, that he and I share. Uh, that was surprising and really cool, and he wrote about it in the foreword. Uh, Colonel Liam Collins, who uh, his his PhD dissertation at Princeton is on counterinsurgency theory. No one will ever read that dissertation other than his advisors. But what he did was 
he took those ideas from his dissertation and planted them into a discussion of several imperial officers at a you know what at an imperial staff officer meeting where they're discussing how to counter the rebel insurgency you know so he's able to take what very few people will ever care to read and then inject it into a lot of a lot more fun and interesting scenario uh, that um, a lot more people will benefit from so uh, the project as a whole for me was a lot of fun to get to know more people read writing that I hadn't even thought about or considered and learn just how deep and wide the reach of Star Wars is and, and how powerful that can be in talking about subjects that most of the time people don't want to talk about. So, Well, we like to give our guests a moment to touch upon something that we might not have discussed in the talk or have a final thought. So I want to hand the floor over to both of you. And why don't we start off with Kelsey? Sure. Um, my so my final thought really is um, something we we don't yet. I think, I mean, it might be decades before we do really have the like definitive piece of um, war on terror fiction or war on terror strategic analysis. The war is long; it's gone through lots of phases. There's a lot going on, and it's an ongoing concern. So we don't really have a way to step back from this thing we are doing and process it. But we do have, um, really, is we do have a interesting body of work. Um, obviously, Star Wars has produced, like, the, the first trilogy is produced post-Vietnam in, the very, in an era when there wasn't so much of this. But even, like, the second two prequels ha- are, were produced during this whole thing. And we have a long... The commentary in the work itself isn't intentional, but the way that it's able to be a metaphor that people can look at how we're thinking about war, how we're using even fictional war as entertainment, and then use it to reflect on our present wars. Um, it's neat. I really I like anything that makes national security and like strategic conversation accessible because I think it's a pretty ongoing concern, and being able to talk about it in Star Wars metaphor is better than not being able to talk about it at all. And I think it's a common ground. Um, and it's good. I think the, I'm really happy that the book exists. I was pretty happy to be part of it. And I think it's, I think the strategic thought is better for leaning into fiction than shunning it. Yeah, this is mad. It, you know, th- this book in a lot of ways to me is, is a gateway drug. It's pot. And, you know, we're hoping that people are willing to, go off into heroin afterwards. I mean, the national security and defense is too often pushed to the side. And these, are, these issues are too important to, to, let, to let pass, especially for civilians. So through mid-century, through 2050, we'll, we will have spent, according to Brown University, $5.6 trillion on the post-9-11 wars. Um, you know, we're involved in several conflicts worldwide right now. Uh, you know, everyone has skin in this game. Armies alone don't fight wars. Societies wage wars. And so that's why this book exists. 
Um, that's why our next project and the, the next book project is another similar book on Game of Thrones. Um, it's it's not it, these conversations matter too much not to use uh, metaphors and and pop culture to to reach a wider audience because it's not hyperbole or exaggeration for me to say that my life as a military officer and our wars, the outcome of them, depend on wise civilian choices. Um, so, you know, while this book, you know, it's not, it may not be for everybody, there's something for everybody in this book and anyone can benefit from, from some of the, the chapters in this book. Well, I want to thank both of you for spending your Monday afternoon with us here at the Loopcast and talking about this really fun and creative way of looking at strategy. And I encourage our listeners to either go to the library and get the book or buy the book, depending on your interest. And hopefully, you know, if you're interested in this topic, you can enjoy it in a new and creative way. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. And like Kelsey, I hope to be a repeat offender someday. <laughs> Fantastic. And thank you, Kelsey. Thank you for having me.